Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the Tatecast. My name is Davis Maddock. You guys can find me on Twitter at Davis Maddock. In this episode of the show, I'm joined by my buddy, Jordan Cooper. You know him better as at BlenderHD. And, uh, you know, I figured it's been about a year since Blender has come on the show, so it was a good time to kind of give us a little bit of refresher on game theory as it pertains to DFS. And then also, you know, just kind of taking a look at the space that we all uh, that we all exist in online, with uh, everyone's attention split in multiple different ways. Of course, old man old man Blender uh, gave me a hard time about uh, the NFTs and the profile pictures. But as always, I do think Jordan has a lot of very interesting things to say and a lot of useful lessons and tips to properly playing DFS in 2021. If you want to support the show, you can always sign up at Patreon.com/takecast to get new bonus episodes though at least one of those a week and then also a reminder we are sponsored by underdog fantasy you can use the promo code grid g-r-i-d download the app on the ios store google play wherever your mobile devices are used or just go to underdogfantasy.com they have an nba best ball tournament i will be hopping into those streets they have an nhl best ball tournament and of course on uh you know every for for every slate right football Baseball, basketball, hockey, soccer, golf. They have their pick'em contests, their rivals contests. There are tons of things to do on the app on a daily basis, and I would encourage you guys to use the promo code GRID and hop in. Now let's get into the episode. All right, everyone, bringing Jordan Cooper, Blender, back in the show. I think it's been about a year since we've done it. I think we did one at the beginning of last NBA season. We uh, we pumped your book, uh, The Theory of DFS, which people can still buy, still learn from. Uh, it's, it's an audiobook. There'll be a link to purchase that book in the description of this show. But uh, yeah, it's here. It's here to do a little, little, little game theory refresher. Well, I, we're, we're definitely not going to be talking about me minting curmudgeonly camels or whatever. And everything's an animal. Why, why is everything an animal with these JPEGs? Well, that, you know, I, honestly, I can't, can say that I am an NFT expert. There are certainly people who know more than me. I I think it is because of Gary V, um, because he because he would do these alliterative tweets, and Gary V's NFT are like, uh, you know, they're they're all alliterative, like the 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 friendly frog and and stuff like that, right? So so it's like it's just copying. Um, but yeah, it's not it's not particularly uh, interesting though. The the Profile picture NFT market is uh, dying very quickly. Why can't someone just put whatever they want as their profile picture? Why do I have to quote like own it? Well, they can, but I mean, this is a whole and and I, I actually bet Jordan, if I and I don't know the answer to this question, I bet that you encountered 
science fiction ideas that are now a part of real life much earlier than most people. I, I would bet that you were like attuned to the idea of the metaverse way before most people. Well, you act like I'm so much older than you. Almost are, aren't you? Almost thirty yet? I I'm, I am almost thirty. Okay, so you what? Twelve years behind? No, it's not like I'm I giving you. It's not like I, I listened to War of the Worlds when it came out on the radio. No, I'm giving you credit. I'm saying that you probably in like 1998 knew about the idea of the metaverse. And well, and I mean, we used to like, have. Uh, I mean, there used to be a thing called uh, Second Life, mm-hmm. which was kind of like like that. That was in the early 2000s. But I mean, I was on the internet like with like when I was really young, like the well. And then he had like Jaron Lanier, who was doing like uh, virtual reality. Back then, he, he wrote a great book called uh, we are, I'm Not a Gadget. We are not a gadget, something like that. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I was on the internet when I was 300 baud modems and ding, you know, before the AOL discs onto yeah. BBSs. That's, but I that's mean, what I'm all, saying. Yeah, but all see, the thing is, is that when people like I'm so like anti- like I'm, I don't own any crypto. I don't. I'm not into these NFTs. Not because I don't understand it. It's just that I, I've, I've seen these these fads. I've seen. Yeah. I've sold MMO MMORPG things. I've seen the stuff from the late '80s. I'm not talking about the physical. People say Beanie Babies. I'm like, no, no. I'm talking about digital shit here. That it's for like a four year period. It's worth. It's worth because there's a community that values it. And then like five years later, it's like, oh, like, oh, the sword that you could buy in World of Warcraft. Like, like, who cares about that anymore? Like, no one does. Yet you could. It was it was six thousand dollars a couple of years ago. I just uh, I just recently learned that the Beanie Babies thing is like way overstated, that they never actually were really that expensive on the secondary market. Like you buy one for 10 bucks and sell it for like 30 bucks. And people considered that a huge fad. Well, Which isn't is, that what Top Shot was essentially? You get these drops, you flip it quickly, and there you go. Well, there was a lot more money trading hands than that. Um, but like the so the the idea with a lot of the, the a lot of the successful NFT projects right now is that it grants you access to a community that you otherwise would not be a part of, and it's representative. Like you know how people put the Roto Grinders logo or the Daily Roto logo as their avatar on on DraftKings and FanDuel. It basically kind of functions that way. And then some of them give you, uh, you know, tokenized payouts. Like, oh, if you own this token, you get, uh, you, you'll get Ethereum paid forward to you or, or something like that. Okay, There's, so I it mean, sounds like a cult. Okay. It, it, you're not describing anything that's new. It's like, okay. No, it's you're just, just describing communities. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. It's not. Yeah, new, but I view the community more like a, a multi-level marketing community, right? It's kind of that, you know, the people at the top of the top of the pyramid, top you know the the, the, the down line like it's all these dynamics are not new people are acting like it's new but i mean these existed you know for hundreds of years i mean they just get a little bit more modernized the entire time and i i just i just view it as 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 essentially an mll mlm scheme and hey if you could be part of the top half of the pyramid go oh god i don't bemoan people making money short term but it's like from a long-term perspective, I'll just put my money in the S&P 500 and I'll see you in 20 years. Well, I mean, you do you do make an interesting point that like, wanting to belong to a community and wanting to flex on people is not uh, is, is not a new thing at all. You don't you don't get the flexing though. You own you own like three pairs of jeans and you wear you probably have like five t-shirts and two hats. You you don't do you don't do the the wealth flex, which is so that that is a foreign thing to you. Well, I mean, I don't see the, the reason in doing that. I mean, even even like 
I remember playing poker for a living and the, the biggest whales were the, the, the rich guys that like dress like schlubs. Like right. someone that came into the card room with like a nice suit or anything was, was not really wealthy. I mean, they weren't like poor or anything, but I mean, I would play with, with businessmen that came in with like fucking stained jogging shorts and everything. And you didn't know who they were. I mean, you didn't know. And then we found out, oh, okay, they're, they, they own, they own a, a chain of 18 furniture stores and they're worth like, like $500 million. And it's like, well, the reason they're in the card, I mean, they, they, they don't have to flaunt their wealth. They're playing the same two, five, no limit game as I am. And they're, they're there. Like you said, they're there for the community, but they don't need to flex anything. Well, that may be true for those people, but rich people do love to flex in general. And Not or, necessarily. Or even, the rich people you know, maybe. <laughs> or, or, I mean, you know, I, and definitely it is more common in like poker and DFS and crypto to want to wanna flex, but it's a very human impulse. And people do this in every culture and every society. It's not a uniquely American thing. It's not a uniquely Western thing. People, people flex their wealth everywhere across the world, and they always have, and they always will. It'll, that'll, never, that'll never change. I flex my wealth with my free time. And some people, some people like to do it that way. Right. Yeah. Right. When you talk to people, Oh, what do you do for a living? It's like, I, I yell on YouTube about, about fantasy sports. And then I met, build some lineups and like, that's what you do. And then what do you do the rest of the time? It's like, I don't know, just watch Netflix and kind of walk the dog or whatever the hell I feel like. Right. So we're going to talk about daily fantasy. Well, I mean, we can get is back it dead? It. I, can we talk about it? I thought it's dead. I thought DFS is dead now. Well, it, it is. Ryan Dot the, says he's dead. It's dead. There's no. There's no. But there's no point in doing it. Well, Dot Dot didn't say it dead. He just is making a lot more money doing other stuff, and that's what I think. A lot of people are. A lot of people are are making much more money in uh, the crypto and the NFT streets. You know, it's it's if if you're a very very rich person, um, I get the sense that it's hard to get excited about you know, $80,000 of, of action on, on DK in a weekend when you, when you can make, you know, four times that in, in markets, you know, well, I'm, I'm glad they're out of my contest then. Yeah. I mean, they, and <laughs> to, to get to, obviously there are still many people playing. I, I play DFS literally every single day. It's not, it's not dead to me. I do find crypto and NFTs to be more interesting to me right now, but, uh, that's just like, that's more of like a personal thing because my attention uh, wanders like that a lot. Like I just get fascinated by new things very easily. Well, I just find new things in DFS. I find different sports. I mean, I just started playing MMA this past year and I'm enjoying that immensely. I mean, I like NFL showdown. I like, I like the, the sports, the formats that have like the game within a game because a lot of people, I mean, compared to 2015 when I started, the concepts that are in the course that I have are not like new or anything. And I think more people are utilizing content tools and, and solid mathematical concepts to at least be competitive in DFS, but there's still a ton of edge to be had in the game. That's beyond that game of, of, I mean, we've seen the showdowns and MMA and the short, short field golf events where, you know, the best EV lineups are actually the ones that like, don't even project well, like that duplication matters so much that finding spots to uh, leverage what the field is doing projection wise, because you have to know that they're looking at the same things you're looking at, unless you're building your own proprietary model. If you're going to be using projections from a multitude of sites, 
Now, people are using, people people are seeing that. That's the reason why I subscribe to all the sites is because I base my play off of, you know, exploiting the field. So I need to know what they're looking at. But I, I think they're, they're, we're still at a stage where a lot of people are finding out that game, which people like us found out, you know, four years ago, right? 2017. I didn't find, I didn't find it early enough. Well, I, I knew about, I just was not a very good tournament player. I, I think I'm, I think I'm much better now. Um, though I am probably less willing than the average good tournament player to like really make gross thin plays. And also part of that is I play lots of single entry and free max. I, I do not MME all that often. Uh, I golf. I'm very willing to make disgusting plays, uh, but, but NFL and soccer, it's hard for me to just make like really gross plays. Well, I think in soccer, it's a little bit differently because the field sizes are so much smaller and typically you're playing three or four game slates anyway. So it's kind of, it's, it's kind of hard to like just jam in two center backs and a, and a defensive midfielder. Cause like you just, you don't need that outcome to happen. There's no million to first in soccer. Like you're only competing against like 5,000 other lineups, but like, that's why I focus more on the large field play rather than the single entry and three max. It still comes down to, uh, is the are you how much better than the field are you? I think so much of uh, people people that want that play DFS are so worried about picking the right plays or building the right lineups and not just getting down to real real bare bay basics. Just like in poker, you show up to a, to a card room and there's ten tables running up. Let's say the same game, same snakes. Like doesn't matter how skillful you are. It's like you just have to be better than most of the players at the table. And you're going to make money. So find the table that has the weakest players. And it, in DFS these days, that's that's the large field GPPs. That's I mean, the, the, you download the CSVs, you look at the ownership differences between high stakes and low stakes, and like yes, it's the the, the problem is especially if you're playing somewhat professionally or for an income like I am, is that the the the, the biggest hurdle is just realizing the expected value of that. Just it's like you have an edge. But how big of a bankroll do you have and how long can you last in order to realize it? And that's the main reason why I'm so conservative with my bankroll. But I, but I, think, I think that's the focus more that it should be on of the stakes that you play. We talk about it on, on the Theory of DFS podcast with Eric Bimefor, that he play, he'll play like the, the game changer. He'll play the 4-4-4-4, Millie, you know, that type of contest. And then I'll play the slant and I'll play the spy and the strategies you use between b- b- both of us are like completely different. And I think that uh, it's a, both are exploitable. One, because in the small, in the, in the large field contests, we have a lot of dead lineups, a lot of dead money, a lot of people throwing in cat, you know, like just building two, two chalky lineups or lineups like, you know, they're chasing guys from the last week, recency bias, tons of casual players. And then in the higher stakes, you have the edge because, there's there's a ton of rich people that are good players that $4000 is only 1% of what they're playing that that week so right. like they're not they're not itemizing their lineup for that specific contest so a lot of times you're just playing against someone's uh top lineup out of their 150 set or you're playing against someone's uh, uh, uh cash lineup or someone's lineup that they're playing in all of their single entry whatever they chose and they're not necessarily the optimal way to play in those contests. So when you are like, you know, let's, let's use uh, the, so the, sh- the 
GPP contest that we are using for the Gill cast this year, because we're trying to introduce some more. We wanted to introduce a GPP element to the show because, you know, obviously some people play NFL cash. NFL cash remains, you know, you get the, the best amount of action. You can get a diverse uh, opponent count, which is important. Like if I play 300 head to head contests, I would like to be against 300 opponents so that if my lineup is 70th percentile, I win 70% of my contest. That's, that's sort of the idea there, but we, we wanted to bring a GPP element in. So we are uh, all entering a lineup into the, the best payout structure as calculated by Nemo, Nate Noling. Uh, so that they do like five red zones a week. That's the $50 single entry. And we're, we're putting our, I mean, we're putting our lineup and using the lineup uh, in the best payout structure one on the show. And that's like what? 4,000 line, 4,000 entries or something. I think it varies on the week. The best payout structure one varies. It, it's in the $50 one is anywhere from between like 850 people to 4,000 people, depending on, uh, you know, cause they, they, they fill and they do so many. Uh, and obviously your, your strategy should change my, my line of differentiation, because I don't, um, I am not as technical as a lot of people who do this. I, my line is like a thousand people. Like if it's 850 people, I will do a stack, but not be worried about, okay, I got to get, you know, I, I, my cumulative ownership matters more, the larger the contest is like, I want my cumulative ownership of all the players on my roster to be lower, the larger the contest is, is kind of how I think about it. Right. Well, uh, that's absolutely true. But the difference though, between the smaller field stuff than the larger field stuff is, is the ability to gain relative value on the field. So a lot of times my lineups for the spy, for instance, uh, or the power sweep are much, are actually much lower cumulative ownership than some of my lineups that I play in the slant. Now, not heavily so, uh, but it's primarily because the the best plays are not uh, are more inefficiently owned in single entry. That I have I have more ways to win a low scoring slate if they fail. So I'm perfectly fine. You know, if there's some chalk stack that's going to be like 25 percent owned in those contests, I could just literally exit out, then play whoever I want. You know, whatever, whatever the best rejected, you know, three plus one or something, whatever lineup I want to play, it's actually going to be lower cumulative owned than some of my slant lineups where I could throw in one of those chalky players because they're not as owned as they would be in a contest like the spy, the power sweep. And then if you get like the juke, once you go up in stakes. So because it, it's one of those things where uh, it's easier to exploit because you know you know what your opponents are going to do. In poker, it's it's similar to first level, second level, and third level thinking. Like when you play, you're going to play a low stakes, no limit game in a casino or something like that. Most likely, you're going to play a balanced strategy. So you're going to you, you don't know how these people play. I mean, you you've gotten into games. I know, Davis. You 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 play plenty of poker, where based on the opponent that you're playing. Their acting, their betting pattern is that they have a strong hand. But a lot of times you're playing against people that don't know the difference between a strong and a weak hand, depending on the board and depending on right. what's happened. So they think their top two pair is like they're they're willing to three bet all in on the on the on the on the turn, even though there's a there's a flush possibility out there and a straight possibility out there. And you're sitting you're sitting there with top set. 
or something. You're sitting there with something, the bottom end of the straight on a flush board going like any average player, like would, would only be making this move if they had that hand, if they had a hand that beats me. Right. And then, then you fold and then it turns out, oh, they show you top two and they thought that that was the best hand. So you get a lot of that type of type of thing in, in the lower stakes. So in the lower stakes, it's more important to just play more optimally, more balanced. So I don't mind playing some of the chalk. I don't mind, you know, the, this could, the, a player could be heavily owned, but not owned enough. But in the, in the smaller field stuff, in the higher stake stuff, uh, you're not playing, you're playing against mostly, mostly people that know what they're doing. So I could, I, I could go around the industry and aggregate projections and go, okay, this guy's going to be more on there. Everyone could see what it is now. How are they going to react to what, what they're looking at? And then if I believe that people are going to go too heavy on this game or too heavy on this player, I go, well, now I'm going to exploit that. Maybe the efficient ownership in the spy of a certain player is 32% while in the slant, his efficient ownership is 26%. Well, in the slant, the guy may be 24% owned. So it's like, actually... He's slightly under-owned in the slant. But in the spy, the efficient ownership should be 32 because it's a smaller field contest. So you want to maximize projection. So I get it. But then he ends up being 36% owned. So it's like now, right. now, he, now he's, he's over-owned. So once you take him out of your lineup, you're gaining all that relative value. And then you could still build a highly projected lineup from there. But the only reason you could do that is because you're more aware that your opponents are doing in poker. The same thing of like if, if, if on, a, on an average table, a one, two, no limit, 300 max game. If someone check raises, if some unknown player check raises me on the river, like unless pretty much unless I have the nuts and obviously if it's a min ray, I mean, it depends on the size check raise all in for five times the bed, the pot size. It's like that's the nuts. I mean, like 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 no average player is going to have the optimal frequency of making that type of move on an observant player at a one, two, three. I mean, just if I folded there every time, most likely I'm going to, most likely I'm profiting, but at a, at a, at a higher stakes game. Well, now we have to get into second and third level thinking. Now we have to, now we have to adjust based on what our opponents know and what our opponents think of what we know. So I view the the DFS game from a strategy perspective, much differently in the, in the small field stuff, like even the $50 red zone, then in the yeah. $9 slant, then in the, the, the $3, I mean, we have a three, there's a, in an NFL, there's a $3 single entry contest, but it still has like 78,000 yeah, yeah, people. Huge, it's huge. Right. But right. people treat it as if, oh, it's single entry. So I'm going to play safe. It's like, no, you should be playing. A, you should be playing a lineup that like is even more contrarian than a lineup that you play in the Millie. And it's like, well, why would you play even a more contrarian? Cause you know, that in single entry, people are more likely to actually play the chalkier plays, which means the more you don't play the chalk, the more EV you get out of the lineups. Yet in the Millie, people are people go crazy, but the chalk is is still less owned than it would be in a $3 large field single entry contest. But I mean, Davis, w- would you agree that like the dynamics that I'm talking about is not like it's going from like DFS. Okay, what's a good lineup? Like that, we started from players in the right, early players. 2010s. Like, well, who's a good play? Play all the good plays, right? And then whatever. And then, then it came into like playing good lineups, like correlation and where do you get leverage? And now, like, 
a lot of a lot of the questions that I that I get during the DFS pregame show, like the number one question I need to ask back is, what contest are you playing? Because those answers can't be can't be given just like like oh here's ownership projections and no the ownership projections are for large field. It's like if you're playing a different type of contest, they actually should be different. So I, I believe uh, uh, the, the the next kind of kind of frontier of of DFS is is projections and ownership and simulations based on contest type and field strength more so than just like one size fits all. Like we're just going to project for some large field tournament, no matter what the slate is. I think the next step is to to itemizing out per contest. Right. And, and, you know, the way ownership projections are done is they're basically set for the milli, right? I mean, that's, that's kind of like, they're, they're set for the very large field stuff. And, that is definitely the way that sims are run. You know, sims are sims are run for huge contests, right? Because it's percentage to make the optimal lineup, not percentage to make the, you know, 80th percentile lineup is going to be good to win the spy most weeks or whatever. Right. I mean, and a lot of times that optimal lineup is no one has. Like like you know how many combinations there could be on a 12 game NFL slate? I mean, it's ridiculous and you don't have to be perfect. And the winning score is all dependent on how well the chalkier players do. So, I mean, you, you'll hear them. You'll hear so many times from from top GPP players that the, that the pros do much better on low scoring slates, and that's because the chalk fails. Maybe not all the chalk fails, but enough of the chalk fails that that we're playing players and lineups that are going underrepresented for their optimal frequency. And there are a lot of players. I had this conversation with Daniel Hutchings, Nuri Tenor on, on my podcast about the difference between balanced and exploitative strategies. Cause it's very similar to poker when it comes to using like a solver of like, if you could do everything at optimal frequencies, like as long as the, as long as your opponents aren't like you, you auto, you automatically prompt. No matter, no matter what it is, as long as you know what the optimal frequencies are. Now, right. if you know how your opponents are deviating and you're more sure about how they're going to deviate, the more profitable way to play is exploitative. Is when they do this too much, now I'm going to change my frequency to exploit their, their overreaction in one way or the other. Do you have to do that? No, you could still just do whatever your optimal frequencies are. It'll still automatically generate a profit. And uh, if you if you look at uh, the CSVs of the contest and you study a lot of the you know top GPP pros, you can see that there's a there's a pretty clear divide on on uh, professional players that utilize one or the other in some regard. There there are some players that essentially are dis- are essentially disregarding ownership and just saying I'm just going to try I'm I'm going to try to play optimally. And then let the field make all the mistakes. And then they don't, they don't know where the mistakes are going to be made, but they can calculate based on their projections, their simulations, and go, it's like, this guy should be this own, this lineup should be this. He, the frequency of playing this stack in MLB and this, and then here's 150 of them. And wherever the field deviates, I profit from. And then you have the more exploitative types where they're doing that also, but then they're, then they're taking into account, well, if this guy's going to be so so much underowned, you know, play more of them. If this one's going to be overowned, play less of them. So they're not playing the optimal frequency. 
They're playing the exploitative frequency. That the major difference between the two is that when you play balanced, you don't have to worry about your opponents. Like you, you literally just have to sit at. You're sitting at a table. You're sitting in a contest that, as long as most of the field is playing inefficiently, you don't have to worry about where they are. But when you're playing exploitative, if you get it wrong, actually you end up becoming up negative, right? You end up, you know, oh, I'm going to play a lot of, I'm going to play a lot of this stack because it's going to be under owned. We see this in MLB. I got, I got burned one slate by the Braves. Well, I calculated everything that they were going to be like 7% owned on the slate. And I played a ton of them and they turned out to be chalk. Like they were like 18% owned as a stack. And I'm just looking going, well, I just played 150 lineups and like, like, 60 of them are brave stacks. Had I known they were 18% owned, I'd have like five of them. So like when you're playing the exploitative style, you're privy, you, you have to actually be good at judging where the ownership will be inefficient, but the balance, the people that play balance really don't have. to. So one, one thing I have wondered is as so much of the field starts to think about the game this way, and there are there are just far less people casually playing DFS now than there used no, to be. There, no, there's there's a lot more. Don't say that. There's a lot of people playing, but more people in the player pool are thinking about it this way. Do you think that the truly like uh, so? Let's say, for example, Dalvin Cook misses. Alexander Madison is priced where you know he should be eight thousand. He's six thousand. One of the things I'm wondering is actually if those guys are still decent, you know, single entry, a thousand people in the contest plays because more of the field is trying to play it a more GTO way. And it might actually even be exploitable to get those. We see this in soccer all the time, right? So four game slate, Manchester city is a two goal favorite or whatever. And you still should play Kevin De Bruyne or Jack Grealish or whoever in like 90% of your lineups. And I, I'm wondering if, you know, slate context, not important, right? So let's say there, he's the clear best value by leaps and bounds. And I'm wondering if, you know, at 40% ownership or whatever, those plays actually might still be good. And then that's it all in that specific instance, it could be, we see this in basketball. I think the better, better thing is basketball where you get that $4,000 point guard that, would normally play 12 minutes and now he's going to play 38 minutes and his projection is his median projection is 10 X. Yeah, I mean, sure. we, we, we've seen that before where guys just essentially stepping into a role where he's going to average one fantasy point per minute plus, And he's 4k. So like essentially his, his projection is 38 as a, as a, as a mean. So you yeah. look at that and you go, well, this guy should literally, I mean, his, what's his efficient ownership? 98%. I mean, like 98% essentially. So really it comes down to figuring that out. I mean, to me, I view all of DFS in, in GPPs, especially uh, if, if you're going to play exploitative is to figuring out what the, what the efficient ownership of a player or a lineup or a team is. is right. right. So, so once you figure that out, then you compare that to what it's going to be and then exploit that. So like in your instance, if, if you're going to tell me that Alexander Madison is going to be 40% owned. Okay. Well, what's the, what is his efficient ownership? I mean, yeah. in your, in the case that you're saying, if he's clear and then like, if you take him out of a lineup, there's no lineup that you could make when you take him out that comes anywhere within like five points mean projection of him. Yeah. Most likely 40% is too low owned, right? I mean, more, most likely he should be 
you know, 70, 80% owned. And if you, if he's going to be 40, you start jamming into all your line. Who cares? Right. You're, you're like, he, he's actually, you're exploiting the field. You're, you're still, it's the highest owned player, yet you're still exploiting the field by playing them at a way higher frequency than they should be. But the balance players, see, the difference is, is that in that case, if we say that Alexander Madison is going to be 40% owned and he should be 60, let's just say the balance players will just determine what they should be owned. So they get to 60 and you know what they do? They play him at 60%. They just play him in, at the optimal frequency that he should be played. The exploitative players say, well, there's this gap. There's this delta between 60% and 40%. How much is that worth in relative value? Because if, if it's, if it's worth enough, I want to play way more of him. Right? I mean, I may have him in 85% of my lineups because I see where the ownership gap is. The thing is, is that the balance players aren't looking, aren't trying to project what other people are going to do. They just, they just figured out on this slate, Alexander Madison should be 60% on. I'm going to play 60%. What is the field going to do? I have no idea. All I know is that he should be 60%. So I'm going to play him at 60%. I'm going to go, I'm going to look at, I go from the opposite direction. I look at what the field's going to do first. And I go, okay, he's going to be 40% on. And then I try to figure out what should he be on, right? So actually I'm, the way that I play, I'm more likely to be much more correct on my ownership projections than my optimal frequencies, right? So like, the guys that are like someone like Nerdy Tenor is running simulations, running running his algorithm, trying to figure out like what's the efficient ownership of a player and then playing that in that frequency. So like he needs to be really good on the projections. He needs to be really good at doing that. Because if he gets it wrong, obviously he's not playing the balance. He's not playing optimally. Me, I, I don't have to get that right as much. I just need to be able to be directionally right enough on the players that, this guy should be more owned. This guy should be less owned by how much and how much is that worth? A lot of that I'm trying to, I'm, I'm essentially guessing at that point. I'm not simulating, but I, be, I believe that in, in the state of DFS in 2021, that me guessing to some extent on the ownership and how to react to it is, is still plus EV in comparison to the fields that there are these days that, you know, we may get to the point in 2028 where the conversations we're having right now is basically solver versus solver. And that's all DFS is. Yeah. That's, I mean, that is clearly the direction that it's heading, right? As we get more computational power, as the Sims get better and you still will need reasonable inputs, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll still, all, all these models will still need inputs, right? You, you still have to get the inputs to get Alexander Madison to, to the points, right? Um, though, though that will become easier and more, mo- not easier, but those, those projections will become better and more modeled and everything. Right. But you could even use industry projections. I, I mean, there, you, you know how many people, I mean, I, I know, I know Brian Hooper is, I remember last year being amazed on lulls that a lot of the top players don't even build their own their projections. They're, they're using projections that are available. Yeah. They just use, they just use an aggregate. A lot of the, a lot of the best players will just use an aggregate, you know, they'll use, the Blitz and Daily Roto and ETR and uh, fa- you know Fancy Labs and and all that stuff and then they will uh, they'll just use that as their model. But at that but at that point you still have to still you, you still have to simulate lineups, simulate contests, right? Like I'm working on something in MMA. Like I said, I'm not I'm not a coder in this regard. I'm more of a like a web front end design type of coder, but. 
uh, in MMA, I, I created a, a spreadsheet that I'm essentially trying to build the leverage into the projection. And it works in MMA because it's, it's linear. It's binary, right? Because right. like you're not going to play two fighters. Like there's no correlation between fights. Like I don't have to worry about that. It's one or the other. And then you fit them all. Day. You want to get the six highest scoring winners into your lineup, essentially. Uh, so the problem is, is that it solves the, it makes it easier for me to get the highest leverage lineups without using ownership some. Cause that's, that's very, cause especially in showdowns in, in MMA, like you could have a, a, a unique lineup that actually has a high ownership sum because you're leaving 2000 on the table and you're still playing some of the chalkiest, you know, fighters or players on the slate. But if you use an optimizer and just use ownership, some you're going to, you're going to miss on a lot of those lineups. So I've tried to create just a score that I could use where the higher it is, that means the more relative value I get. And the lower the score means the less relative value you get. And I want a certain amount of relative value into my lineup. Now that solves the first problem of making sure your lineups are leveraged for the contest size, but it doesn't solve the other problem of avoiding duplication. So what right. I've been trying, what I've been trying to do is use uh, the ownership projections. And I, I tweak them myself uh, to then, I know this may sound simple to people that, that they do this because this is what they do. I'm going to take the large field MMA contest of 36,000 lineups and try to simulate what those lineups are. Like I want, I want to produce this, the exact 36,000 lineups that are going to be in that contest. And then when I, I, I it's, it's a, it's a hackneyed way to do it. I know that people will listen and go, Oh, you know, someone that knows R well and knows a lot of this, uh, this, uh, this stuff. Well, right. You could do it much easier. Me, I'm using Excel and it, it, things are very slow. Like essentially what I'm doing is seeing simulating the lineups, not the, the results, but just the lineups that are going to be in the contest and then comparing my set to it and go, is there any, and any of the lineups that I've made with my proprietary little leverage score, uh, how many, how many dupes are they going to be? Yeah. And eliminating, then I could... eliminating dupes is a huge part of, of showdown too, because, you know, again, all we, we want first, right. All, all, most of the, of the equity is in getting first. And if you think you're going to be splitting first, that really decreases the equity of a lineup. Right. But the second level to what I'm doing is what you really should be doing is simulating the contest and seeing the exact expected value of the lineups. So what, what, what a lot of sharp players do uh, with, with the, with the coding skills and, uh, and then the knowledge is that they just simulate the, con- simulate all the lineups, simulate all the contests with the projections that you have for whatever sport it is. And then basically condense it down to go, well, based on all these lineups, what's the, t- what's the highest EV lineups? And let me play 150. Right. So, um, okay. Another question was about showdown for NFL, because I, I find showdown for NFL to be really interesting. And I think that the MME stuff is like, it's not solved, but it's super efficient. But I think that ownerships are bad in single entry and three max, because I feel like people are people way over own the running back one, the QB one and the wide receiver one. Like those guys, like that group, that grouping of players will make up, you know, like 70% of the captains, maybe even more like, uh, you know, Chiefs showdown slate. In single entry, no one's captaining McCole Hardman, right? Uh, a Ravens showdown slate. Uh, the Marquise Brown and Mark Andrews captains are are really low. 
And I'm wondering if you've done any thinking about that stuff. Well, yeah, it's the same. It's the same type of approach conceptually as I do on the classic slates. That I'm more likely in single entry on showdown to be different than be along the field because most people think of duplication when it comes to the large field contest. So, like, I understand a lot of sharp players that they will play that way, but in these smaller field things, a lot of times you're getting their first out of 150, or you're getting the cash lineup, or you're getting so so you're getting these these inflated especially in the captain spot, you get inflated captain ownership. And if your aim is for first place, like my, like I, I played, I played the, the hundred dollar, whatever, single entry on showdown, pretty much every showdown. And most of the time, my captain is, is a weird captain. I'm just like, like if the second wide receiver, the second running back, right. Probably not defense because they tend to be overowned as it is right? I'm rarely ever playing quarterback captain unless it's a, an underdog quarterback that's underpriced that isn't going to be owned enough. And you just, you play for the shootout in the other direction, but I'm, more, I'm much more likely to get different in the captain spot, but I'm less likely to get different in the flex spots only because it's a smaller field contest and raw points still matter. And there's only so many players that are on the yeah, slate. Like you I'm less likely necessarily... that- Especially if you've already made like a non, like a, an unlikely to be duped captain, you don't necessarily need Josh Oliver or, or Devonta Freeman or whoever. Right. Right. That's exactly. I think, I think too many people, at least average players, I'm not saying the sharp ones do, you know, try for those, those $600 punt plays uh, as a way to differentiate, but they don't realize that if you're spending like almost all of your salary, you're actually not being that unique, right? You're actually like those, those are the plays that you play instead of the $2,000 guy. And you just hope that one guy gets the touchdown and the other guy doesn't on one catch or whatever. I think it's I think it's much better, uh, especially in single entry, to because the captain ownership will be more inflated. The flex ownership actually isn't all that that different. Like the five percent owned guy in in the large field is like seven percent in the small field. It's not that drastic of a difference. But we see the captains. Right. The quarterback captains go up. The running back one and the wide receiver one captains go up a lot. But the wide receiver two and threes and those guys, they actually go down. So we, like, we, we just had a Packers slate that like uh, in the like in the large field, like you'll see a whole bunch of those captains. Me, I played Alan Lazard in the captain. Yeah, sure. He didn't get a target. Right. But I fit everyone else around him. Like my lineup was good enough that if Lazard got a 50 yard touchdown, I probably would have won. Cause I was able to fit like Aaron Jones and Aaron Rodgers, like, and it's just, yeah, I, did, I, played, I have a 1.3% own captain in single entry. That's yeah, so I much better AJ than Dillon me building there. an Aaron Jones lineup and, and trying to compete against like 60% of the same old types of lineups in the entire field. Yeah. You know, I, 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 I find it interesting that you are so willing to grind the, the very small edges here but I mean, as far as I know, and, and you transition from poker to this, it, it is fascinating to me that you are so willing to get into the micro stuff here, but you like, you don't do any of these other trades. Like you're not, you're like, are you ever looking for other financial opportunities or are you just grinding DFS? Well, I, I, I put my money in the stock portfolio, but I mean, that's yeah, but that's, give, give me, give me, those, I mean, aren't, I, those aren't trades though. Right. No, those aren't trades. No, no, I, my personality, I'm either all in or I'm not. Like I, I don't feel comfortable unless I mean, even in DFS. Like I if I don't if I don't feel like I could play a slate, like you play you're, you're playing EFL, you know, the, you're playing the the Carabao Cup soccer slate. Like, yeah, I could probably do well in that slate, but if I if I 
if I know that I'm doing a show, or I'm doing that. Like, no, I don't have, I don't have to play on Sunday. It's like, I'm not playing, uh, always playing the afternoon slate, the showdown slate, the, the, this slate got to play, got to build. Yeah, MLB I, I, don't, lineups. I don't do that. I don't do, I, I used to, I don't do the, the morning slate night slate stuff anymore. I maybe, maybe my will to win has diminished a little bit. I understand if you what if you're if you're truly grinding, that's what you should be doing. But my even in DFS is like if I'm not going to be all in on something, I don't feel comfortable putting my money behind it. So like on a Saturday, you know, I, I'm I'm playing soccer in the morning, right? I'm playing MMA in the evening, and if there's an MLB slate, then I just don't play it, even during MLB season because I'm focused on my MMA lineups. I'm not going to just transition over to MLB and go. I don't know what the hell's going on? And let me just make lineups a half an hour before lock. I just, I'll just sit out. I have no problem. So all, all these people making money on the, the, the NFTs and all the, the crypto and all n- number one, I don't believe in any of that stuff. So, I mean, so it could be something else. I mean, some other thing that no one's ever heard of that I'll probably never tell them about it because I'll be making money doing it. Uh, if I was, if I was into that, then I'd be into it. And then I understand the people that are, if you're in, if you're, researching nft projects and flipping stuff and whatever all the best to you i mean i don't agree that it's the future of everything that's the only difference between the 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 two of us is is like but if you're if you're grinding that god bless you i mean but i think like like with uh with ryan doubt last last week like he finds that it's more worthwhile to do that than play dfs but he could also play the right he could play dfs Right, but he, he could play, yeah. Right, but he he's going to spend the time doing something that he's more all in on, than yeah. It's like a, it's like a combination financial reward and dopamine thing. Right, and and, and and yeah, and I, I've always, I've always stated that like my goal is not to get rich. My goal is to never have a real job. So like like my 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 threshold on my standard of living is is I'd have fun staying poor. It's like no, I'm I'm I'll find. If you could make one hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year doing this stuff, I'm, I'll I'll do this until I until I die, right? To not have an actual real job, I wake up whenever I want, yell on YouTube, and yeah, talk but if to, it's, talk to if people it's, like you, if it's solver versus solver in five years, oh, I, I still that? think that no, I, I, there'll be plenty of dumb people playing. I mean, come on, look, look, it's two thousand twenty-one. Ninety-five percent of the fields are still treating the game like it's from two thousand twelve. Are you uh, are you not worried about the the sports betting stuff starting to encroach and just the DFS sites care less? The the prize pools are smaller. Like, does any of that stuff? Uh, well, or are you interested at all in, in grinding any of the sports betting stuff? Uh, the sports betting stuff is interesting to me. One, uh, I don't do any sports betting touting or anything anything of the regard because it's all BS. Uh, I, I I and. I don't bet on sports, but but I, I have been part of a sports betting syndicate before. So like I I know how sports betting works. Uh, I was doing online sports betting back in like the, back in my poker days. Right. Uh, the thing that I'm most interested in is 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 that in the American market, I think the, the U.S. companies are more likely to innovate than the European ones. So I'm I'm waiting for peer to peer sports betting games. And I'm not saying peer-to-peer. If people think of it as the exchange model, I don't think the exchange model will ever work. I don't think you'll ever get enough liquidity where people essentially post their own lines, right? Oh, I'm going to bet this money line and someone takes it. Like, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about 
more of the the DraftKings uh, sports betting contest thing, the the championship and the the Westgate yeah. Super Contest type of stuff, where it could be a contest of like, okay, everyone has to pick eight prop bets, and then but you only have to put in five bucks, and if you get whoever has the most or whatever wins the you know it's a millie maker, right? It's a millie maker, but you have to pick all fourteen teams on you know like that type of game where you would you could imply game theory of the sites take their rake they take their 15 percent, and then it's just like okay so if i know that everyone's going to be betting on the you know filling out their lineup with the minus 14 favorite you know that that's like that's going to be 86 percent owned and then you obviously could do the calculation based on the money line of how long they should be right i mean like now we're talking about dfs concepts again so like that's what i'm that's what I'm hoping for because I think well, that's uh, not a, that's not a DFS concept. That's a game theory concept. Right. Oh, well, that's really- a, right. But it's a similar type of you're using what you would normally do in DFS to now this other type. I mean, yes, it's a, this applies to all games in general, but it's the same mentality of, which is oh, another reason why I'm surprised you love the game theory so much, but you, you don't, or at least are not actively using the game theory part of your brain to game other markets, which I, I just find that to be interesting because almost everyone else that I talk to in DFS. I mean, they like sports, but they like, they games. like the game. They right. like the games. And that's why they're so into crypto. And that's why they're so into poker and all these other things, because there's so much game theory element going on. But I don't think crypto, I don't, I don't think cryptos have the, has game theory. I think it's a manipulated mark. Oh, there's a, there's a lot of game theory. There's a lot, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, of, of theory and understanding of markets and stuff because it's uh Crypto markets are, are just markets on speed. They just move so much faster. Right. But I'm not interested in like, even with the stock market, I'm not interested in, in uh, you know, trading, day trading, that type of stuff. Even back in the, in the 2000s, I worked for sites that did that. Right. I, I developed those types of sites. And it's like, if you look at the long, at the long run, most people that day trade or lose money in, or at least don't make as much money as just putting the money in an index fund. And if right. I could, if I could, I mean, it's the same way that I treat cash games now in DFS, like in NBA, like this past, this past year, I literally played the top optimal lineup from the Roto-Grinders projections. Now, obviously I switched out late players. If, you know, stuff changed, someone's out, but that's all I did. I just, I played it. Like I just basically said, I'm going to take, I'm going to take $20,000 and I'm only going to play 10% of it per slate, right? Across multiple sites. And whatever it is, you know, if I'm up to 25,000, now it's 2,500. So I kept on going and made no decisions whatsoever. Didn't just whatever, whatever the projection said, that's exactly what I played. Doesn't matter if I don't, I look at it and go, this is a bad choice. Doesn't matter because I'm not treating it as I'm playing this slate. I'm treating it as it, I just put in, I gave someone else $20,000 and now I have no control of it until the end of the season. Right. So I'm viewing it as an entire season. And I just did that every slate and, and made sure to enter, you know, diversificate, diversified double ups and head to heads. Right. I'm not just playing one, you know, thousand dollar head to head with it. You know, a very diverse set of contests. And at the end of the year, I'm up twenty five thousand dollars at the end of the at end of the season doing it that way. Like are to me, not, I view, I view to... that I, I view that as a success because from a from a, a an efficiency standpoint, like. There's a different to me. That's optimal. Like, could I have made more money if I would have made the choices on specific slates? It's possible. It's also possible I would have made less money 
But all I know is that if I literally do the show up for a slate two minutes before lock and play whatever the optimal is, and if that shows a profit of X, is X worth it to me to do that for that little amount of time? Absolutely. So to me, the the crypto stuff, like all that, to me, if I'm not if I'm not knowledgeable enough about the subject, like I would have to go all in and then I have to find all the nuances in that and then do the same thing that I did in DFS of started playing in 2015 and learned. And it, and it, if I look back at me from four years ago, I'd say, but look at that idiot. But that idiot was profitable. That that idiot four years ago was still profitable. And I'm looking like, you, wow, I learned so much more than do I want to do that in crypto and NFT now? I'm like, no, I'm gonna be behind. I'm already, I believe I'm already ahead of most most of the oh, field. You're, you're not you're not behind. But are you not worried about inflation? Because <laughs> really? 150, inflation is the is the wide receiver cornerback matchups of economics. <laughs> no, it's very real, dude. Go how much is a how much is a Chipotle burrito cost now versus what it cost a year ago? Well, once once the supply chain actually works, maybe we could figure that out. Well, maybe I, I the issue is the supply chain and not that the, that it's no, every everything is more. It's ev- ev- the, no, it no, 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 no. Everything that rich people buy is more expensive. Not everything that poor people buy. I mean, even even a cup of coffee is more expensive now than it was a year ago. Not here. No. Where do you live in somewhere in Louisville, New York, Kentucky. right? Louisville, Kentucky. You go, you go oh. here. You don't see signs of inflation. You, there are certain products that cost a little bit more only because of like, like we had the lumber shortage. So like, like you couldn't even get furniture for like, like I, I, I have real estate agents I know that are like, you know, we couldn't get people to move in because they try to get new furniture and it's like on a six week back order. And, but it's then, and they're charging more only because there's less inventory, but that's not because of inflation. That's because there was... They couldn't make enough furniture, right? So I see that across the economy more so than inflation. All these assets, all the money that's going into assets are going into, it's, it's rich people assets, right? It's not, yeah, it's that not, trickles, poor, it's that not trickles, poor people's That stuff. trickles down to us. Make, oh, make and no I don't believe in a trickle it. down crap. Come on. <laughs> I'm, I'm just saying it is, it is a true thing that consumer goods and housing and all that stuff is much more expensive. I mean, if, if there, if, 35% of all the dollars that exist were printed over the last year. How, how would it even be possible to think that there is no inflation? Oh, because I believe in modern monetary theory. So it doesn't matter. Well, the, the Fed, the Fed has already said there's inflation. They're just lying about it and saying that it's transitory. Who says, who says they're lying? They're, I can tell you they're lying because they're. Oh, I, where's your economics degree? Oh, where? Oh, because they're, we should they're get, get you on the phone with Powell. And so you make sure to tell him. Their plan is to continue to print more money. They're, they, if they, if they were to stop printing the money, I mean, when, whenever this roller coaster, well, they're stops, not technically printing money, and you know that they're buy, they're buying assets. Well, they are creating more dollars. Well, by by putting by putting assets on their balance sheet, right? Which is it's a it's a and you understand this as well as I do. That is a house of cards, right? And I'm not saying they can't keep building the house of cards higher, but eventually. Yeah, eventually we'll tax the rich people the way they should be and, well, and then, hey, then we don't have to worry about it. buddy <laughs> i i wish that i wish that i could agree with you i wish i could say that's what's going to happen oh no i know it's not going to happen because because who's in control of all the levers it's all the rich people right yeah and so i i i mean i think that inflation is like that should be like the number one thing that would con- that should concern anyone no, what is money. this the weimar republic it's not that we're not going to wheelbarrows to get a loaf of bread 
with all our dollars. I mean, a loaf, of, a loaf of bread costs sixty percent more right now than it did two years because ago. of the supply chain, not because because everything I else think, is more expensive to move stuff. I but there's shipping containers. That we have empty. We we can't get get enough shipping containers at the ports. They're all it's all backed up and everything. So I mean, to me, that's what's transitory. Is there's always inflate. I mean, for I can't deny inflation. You get inflation every year. That's the whole point of not putting your money in the savings account, right? You put your money in the savings account, you're losing money. So you might as well at least put, like I used to put my money in a money market account and then they cut what they cut that off. Like I was getting like 2%. It's like, okay, keep up with inflation. At least it's there. And then they cut that down to like 0.35. I'm like, I got to get this money out of here. So I just put more money in the stock portfolio. So it's like, okay, fine. That And that obviously that was a great decision to do. But I mean, I'm like I said, I'm, I'm not I'm not an economics professor i don't know don't 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 go by my opinions it's just that that I, i'm more i'm more likely uh to believe that when people say the sky is falling it isn't right and it's and if you look at the, over the course of of the american economy the world economy in the past hundred years like there's so many people yelling the sky is falling and the sky never fell. Yeah, but but if, what if you what if you zoom out on the chart and you you look for the last four thousand years and you'll see nation states fall because of bad monetary policy? Sure, but I'll be dead by then, right? I'll be dead. I'll drain. What if dead. what if what if we're running bad? What if what if you and I run bad and we actually live through the time where where the United States monetary policy actually fails? What if we run bad and we happen to be in one of the time frames where okay, monetary then policy we have, fails. We have, we have so much more to worry about than what where we invested our money. Well, I just want to make if sure If our nation state money. falls, I, are, we, are we concerned about, you know, playing the right DFS contests? It's going to be Mad Max out there. I'll be there with the, you know, the, I'll, I'll have to, you know, be out with the AK-47 protecting my property. I mean, like, there's oh, so much more stuff to worry about if that happens. Yeah. Uh, I mean... So like, I kind of agree with that, but there are, so, so let's say we run semi bad and it gets really bad, but the United States uses all of our, you know, I mean, the reason why the dollar is as strong as it is, is because of all of our guns and weapons, right? We, we, and, and because of the petrodollar that we, we kind of have the rest of the world, um, you know, by the back of the scruff with, with all of our weapons. I mean, you, you could certainly look at, a a world where the U.S. dollar starts to weaken, and we're all we're all screwed because we we didn't do anything to fight against inflation, and the U.S. dollar is just worth so no, much well, less. No, no, it, it if that doesn't happen, we'll just all die from climate change anyway. So what does it matter? <laughs> I, well, I the, the point that point. I'm making is that I that the people screaming the sky is falling may actually be right two hundred years from now, and I'll be dead. So like to me, it doesn't matter. Like. When people, uh, I, I remember uh, even even 20 years ago, people talking about the singularity, right? You don't hear that much about the singularity anymore. We're, we're going to upload our brains into computers and that's going to happen. And people are like, I, I, 2035, I it's going to happen. It's like, it doesn't, the stuff doesn't happen that quickly. I, right? still, I still think about the singularity. Sure, but it's not going to happen in our lifetime. There are rich people who are trying to. Yeah, but I don't, I, progress does not, does not, is not that quick. Even when it comes to the progressive policies that I back, I mean, like, yeah, I'm for Medicare for all, but I know it's not like you snap your finger. Some some people I know that are liberal, are like, no, they snap your fingers and we get it. And like, no, it's 
it's it's it's a lot it's all incremental progress it's all pushing just constantly pushing small 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 uh the way there that it's not going to change overnight and same for technological progress right yeah yeah the, the, there was tons of people saying the internet was a fad in 1993 right i knew it wasn't i knew it wasn't a fad but I didn't, I didn't, oh, in three years, yeah, lots everyone's people, on the internet. Lots of people were saying that Bitcoin was a fad in 2014 or whatever. Right. And maybe, it, and, and maybe it's, and maybe it's not, but by the time it, it becomes mainstream currency or whatever, you could be 72 years old by that. I mean, like, like I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I'm well, not Bitcoin against already, the thesis. It's I'm against the time it's period. needed to do for me. You know what I mean? If Bitcoin has already hedged me against inflation, it's already it's but already it's not an inflation hedge. My money, dude. Sound the money. Bitcoin moves in the same direction that 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 equities move. How is it? And how equities, is it a equities, equities are are an inflation hedge. Equity. So so that what I believe in general is that your debts should be denominated in dollars, and your assets should be denominated in literally anything else. Okay. You should have as few dollars as possible and you should have you should have stocks, you should have property, you should have crypto, you should have anything. And you should just you should let the dollar continue to inflate and you should keep your store the value of your time and anything else. I, I agree that's with what, that. That's but, what but, money but, but you is. know, but you know what the inevitable happens is that that just creates more and more inequality between people with assets and people with dollars. But that's not good for the overall economy in general. Yeah. No, you're right. I thought I thought I thought you're pro- I thought you, you you're a progressive, right? I am. You're for the poor people. So I am for. I I am a leftist. I'm not a liberal, right? So, uh, what I want is for there to not you know the my my like biggest political positions would be climate change and would be for. Uh, closing the gap between uh, the classes, right? I I think it is, I think that probably most billionaires are criminals. Um, I don't even really know if billionaires should even exist. Uh, But but at at like the same time, I've sort of been, uh, I'm just very unhappy and disapproving of most things that our centralized federal government does. And so that kind of puts me in between a a rock and hard place because what, what you're saying is, I want these people to tell this group of people that they can't do this thing. Well, also I want to tell this centralized group of decision makers that they can't do this. And that's, so that's a, it's a, a thorny political problem that I have not been able to solve for myself. Right. And I, I, I agree with you to some extent, certain things should be federalized and certain things shouldn't be. And it's just a matter of which ones that we agree or disagree on. Cause there's tons of stuff that's already federalized that I don't see anyone on Facebook creating memes about about their infringing on their freedom it's like right. well if, if if you're this is infringing on your freedom how come you're not how come not you're, you're not at the dmv with your picket with your sign saying that you know that oh i can't believe you have to get a driver passport like that to me to me all the po- the political realm is is all hypocritical that it's yeah. like it what's good what's what's good for me it's fine to be crit- hypocritical but if it's good for you then we have to be consistent so, like to me, that that's where I get my nihilistic attitude towards politics. Nothing ever gets done. It's all it's 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 heavily divided. So all all you can do is incrementally push as many people as possible slowly, slowly there, and maybe hopefully by the time 
you die. You see the policies that that you actually do stand for exist. And obviously, if you have children, right, they you you, you push it along just so your kids can have a better life. Yeah. All right. Tell people where to buy the book. Give them the code. Theoryofdfs.com. It's a 15-hour DFS masterclass. Me and James McCool. It's like a seminar. It's like if you went, if we had a seminar for like, you know, the two-day seminar and you, you learned everything there is to know about the game theory of DFS. Doesn't matter the sport, NFL, NBA, MLB. It has a whole bunch of chapters. The chapters are about game objectives, player selection, expected value, leverage, correlation, construction, risk management, exploits, and psychology. And you could pick it up at theoryofdfs.com. Use the promo code TAKECAST, spelled incorrectly as it should be, and you'll get $10 off. There we go. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening. We will be back next week. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So... No, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. 